My sister and I are great friends. But we haven't always gotten along. There, there were definitely those times growing up where I would push those buttons that only little brothers can push. And, and we still have our, our moments today. A few months ago, during one of those weeks when all the pressures and anxiety around COVID were just kind of bubbling up and, and spilling into every nook and cranny of life, we had a, a bit of a spat. After talking on the phone a few times, Liz, my, my sister, she laughed out, lashed out over a text message, probably responding to one of those buttons that I, I pushed with, with something like, maybe we just shouldn't talk for a while until this whole thing is over. She was angry. She was sad. She was, she was hurt. I was angry. I was sad. I was hurt. A, a day or two passed, and, and she sent another text. She said, I, I hate this. I hate not talking. When can we chat? I called her. We, we both apologized, and now we're back to talking pretty much each and every day. Now, we have been in this series about engaging uncomfortable conversations for the last six weeks or so. And sometimes the most difficult conversations to engage are with those with whom we are closest. So think of the last time that you experienced conflict within your own family. Who, who was it with? A parent? A sibling? A spouse? A child? Maybe not somebody who you're directly related to, but, but someone who you've chosen to be a part of your, your close family. What, what was it about? How was it resolved or what was left undone and unsaid? This series is built on the idea, on the concept that we are called to take Jesus's teaching on peacemaking seriously and to actually live out being ambassadors of reconciliation as Paul calls followers of Christ to do in 2 Corinthians. And sometimes that's hard, especially when it comes to our own family. So before we get into our, our second reading this morning, I, I think it's important that we, we kind of unpack what we mean when we talk about that idea of family. In different cultures and, and during different times in history, it's carried all sorts of connotations. And, and we live in a time now where, where the definition of a family is often debated and sometimes it's very divisive. So some would suggest that the, that the traditional understanding of family is under attack. Others would say that the ideal of a family being two parents, two and a half kids, a dog with a house and a yard and a, a white picket fence, that it's an invention of Western culture and, and we should question it anyway. Now, no matter where we stand, families look different today than they did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And families look different where we live than they do in other parts of the world. So when we, we look at the Bible and we talk about that idea of family, we have to understand that there are all kinds of different cultural and historical nuances, de depending on when the passage was written and the context in which it was written. Earlier this week, I read that the, the, the size of the average American household actually grew from the year 2010 to 2017, from something like 2.58 people to 2.65, and that the expectation is it will grow again in the next report next year to, to something like 2.8. Now compare that to the average household in Old Testament times that had somewhere between 50 and 100 people in one household. 
Every household included a patriarch and multiple generations, as well as some cousins, maybe some in-laws, as well as those who worked for the family business. So today's concept of nuclear family would have been totally foreign to someone who was from the ancient Near Eastern culture. And as society continued to develop, by the time Jesus is born, that concept of family, it evolved a little bit, but it's still largely driven by by a patriarch and and really by economics. So if you were a wealthy man, you had a lot of children, you had a lot of people probably working for you, and they'd they'd either live with you or they'd live right next door, and the more influential, the more wealth you, you got, your circle would kind of grow, but they would all be considered a part of your household, your immediate family. Now, that's not at all to say that the immediate family wasn't important to Jesus. He always talked about familial relationships, often because he wanted to redefine what was popular in his culture to point people toward a radically different way of living. It was all about instituting God's kingdom. And so by the time Paul writes most of his letters, the understanding of family was largely influenced by the Greco-Roman world. And many of the churches that he wrote to had people both with a Jewish background, so a Jewish culture, and and a non-Jewish background, so brought in the non-Jewish understanding of family. What we read about earlier in the book of Romans about adoption and being children of God, it's incredibly important because it connects the Gentile world to the Hebrew world, and and more importantly, the the Gentile people to, to God's covenant, to God's promise. And the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus was, was probably one that circulated around multiple churches in the community, in the city of Ephesus. And it invited them to work together, to seek unity as they, they shared the gospel. So when we get to our, our second passage for today, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, he's, he's giving instructions on how to live. And he calls followers of Christ to be intentional with every aspect of life. So he contrasts carelessness with being filled with the Spirit. And he invites his readers to recognize that all good things come from God the Father. Again, there's the familiar relationship. And then he writes this, Matthew 5, or sorry, Ephesians 5, verse 22. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? The NRSV translates it, uh, be subject to one another. And the message Eugene Peterson writes, be courteously reverent to one another. It's a call to consciously and constantly place ourselves at the mercy of the other simply because we value the relationship with the person above anything else. It's a way of living that is as uncommon today as it was during Paul's time. And it says, I'm going to make the choice to set aside being right or winning an argument or proving a point because I love the person that I'm with. And the why behind it, the why behind it for Paul is the most important part of this verse. It's out of reverence for Christ. Sometimes the work of reconciliation begins with our own humility. And and then Paul writes about modeling reconciliation through mutual submission, starting with family relationships and then turning to what what I consider to be work relationships. Starting at uh, Ephesians 5, 22. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I know there's all kinds of language and all kinds of difficult sentences in this this passage. There can be all kinds of problems with what we just read. And and to take this out of context, as a lot of people do today, they they twist it into something it's not. Which is why it's important that we talk about historical and cultural understandings when we talk about scripture and when we talk about family. But if we can get beyond the, the difficult language... But we see that healthy relationships in the family, they go two ways. Submitting to one another involves this, this back and forth, a give and take, if you will, of, of love and respect. And Paul uses that, that give and take within the family here, specifically with the understanding of marriage first, from his day, as an illustration to describe Jesus' love for the church. He paints a picture where submission and love, they go hand in hand with one another. So whenever I officiate a wedding, I remind the couple that while their wedding day is one where love comes easy, sometimes almost effortlessly, where they're just they're feeling the love, right? I remind them that marriage isn't easy. It takes work. It's a conscious choice to wake up every day and to work on that relationship because the marriage is worth the work. And while there's definitely a reason Paul is speaking specifically to a marital relationship here, the truth is any relationship with someone who we love, someone who we consider to be close to, is going to take work. So so the question for us is, are we willing to put in the work? Are we willing to pair love and submission to show uncommon respect to one another in order to pursue reconciliation and wholeness within our families? 
After inviting the church in Ephesus to be intentional with with marriage relationships, Paul turns to the relationship between parents and children. And and there's this continued theme of, of give and take, again, all out of reverence for Christ. Children are called to obedience. And parents are called to be responsible with the way that we raise our children. In the same way that the definition of marriage and family was heavily influenced by society and cultural norms, that the relationship between a parent and a child looked drastically different when Paul wrote these words than it does today. Which almost, if you know the culture then, it almost makes it more powerful. In Paul's world, children, they, 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 were, they were belittled. They were often kind of set aside. They, they were a means to an end, sometimes even seen as property or discarded completely as, as useless. So when Paul writes here that fathers, fathers are, are not to exasperate or, or really provoke their children, he's calling parents, dads in particular, to respect their kids. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, he echoes this line and he adds in, so your children won't be discouraged. Our kids need us. They they need to be encouraged with words of respect and love. I I read a, a pretty bad but equally poignant joke this last week that said, more twins are born today because children are afraid to enter the world alone. It's scary to be a kid. It was in Paul's day. It's definitely today. So parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, anyone who has friends with kids, we have a responsibility. What what sort of conversations are we having with our kids? Are we encouraging them? This last week, Sarah Ramos and our children's team hosted a Zoom call with the author of the book, When Kids Ask Hard Questions, because sometimes kids have really difficult questions and we don't know how to answer them. But we need to be prepared to have them come to us with them. How are we supporting them? Now, if you want to be a part of that continued conversation, you can you can reach out to Sarah, whether you have kids of your own or not, or if you're thinking of someone else's kids. Every child needs to know that they are loved. They need to know that they're not alone. And and we have a responsibility to encourage them. So at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to think about the last time you experienced conflict in your family. Whether it was with someone you're related to, spouse, child, brother, sister, or someone you consider close enough to be family. Now some of us might be in the middle of a, a conflict right now. And my encouragement or my challenge is to actively work toward reconciliation in that relationship. Have that uncomfortable conversation while humbly submitting to that person out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, sometimes the most difficult conversations we have are with those with whom we're closest. Lord, help us to engage those conversations lovingly, living out our calling to be ambassadors of reconciliation in every single sphere of life. We pray these things in your name. Amen.